So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on day six of creation was God's crowning creation, that of man. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that God formed the man out of the dust and he reached down, he breathed into the nostrils of that man the breath of life. Think about that. And God and man became a living creature. God formed man and he breathed into him the breath of life. And when God formed man, he made man, Scripture says, in his own image, in his own likeness. And that means that he put in man a DNA that were some of the attributes that God himself had. We call those communicable attributes. Attributes like this. Every person created has an inner sense of right and wrong. Every person. Every person not only has a physical body, but has a spirit from the time they are created, that spirit will live forever. Once born, will never cease to exist. God also put an inner awareness of that in our hearts. We know that. We know that there is something after this physical life. Ecclesiastes says that God placed eternity in our hearts. We know that. We can reason. We can think logically. We're creative. Music and art. Just think of going to an art gallery and seeing the, the creativeness of man. Literature, technology. Man and woman together can bring into existence a living soul. And we can love. And we desire to be loved. So we bear the image of God. Every, every single human being, regardless of how much that image now is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age, every single human being still has the status of being made in the image of God and should be treated, everyone, with dignity and respect. Being an image bearer of God determines how we treat others but it gets even more personal. Being an image bearer of God, being created in the image of God, should determine how we treat ourselves, what we think of ourselves, how, how, we, how we carry out this privilege of being an image bearer. So that's in Genesis 1 and 2, and then right after Genesis 1 and 2 comes what? Genesis 3, right? Every time. Every time. You know the rest of the story. So man and woman are in the garden. God tells them, here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. They disobeyed God. Sin entered into the human race and has dogged us ever since. At that moment in the garden, we were separated from God. So just think about the tension that man has now. On one hand, we are created in the image of God. We know right and wrong. We know what's going on. There's this eternity in our heart. And on the other hand, we're separated from God. Writers in the past have called that, that a void in our heart, a restlessness, a searching. 
We know that there's this eternity, but we're separated from God. And you can go throughout the world and look at the religions of the world, and man in every place is trying to figure out how in the world do you get to God? How do I fill this void in my heart? Now, as Christians, we have the answer, right? It's Jesus. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. It is God, Scripture says, it is Jesus who brings us to God. So now there is no void. By the cross, that void, that gap has been bridged. So now we have this relationship with the living God. We're not only image bearers, but now we are children of God. Then we still have this tension, right? Because we're children of God. But as believers, we still sin. We still fall short. Uh, we still fail. Sin is not completely eradicated from our life. We still have that going on. So now we have, as believers, this tension. We don't always look like we're believers. We don't always act like we're believers. Sometimes we doubt our, ourselves, don't we? Which brings us back to the question. Are you for real? And then it gets even more personal because we're harder on ourselves than anyone else is. So the question I ask is, am I for real? Knowing my thoughts, knowing my desires, knowing my inclinations, am I for real? Am I worthy? Am I worth it? Am I for real? Take your Bibles and, or your iPhones or your smart pads and turn to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Today we're going to consider uh, the introduction to this letter that Paul wrote to those in Corinth. And we're going to see two things. First thing we're going to see is this. God is at work in your life. God's grace is at work in your life even in your failures, your deepest failure. God's still at work. God has brought you to himself, and he will keep you there, and he will sustain you to the very end. That's the second thing we're going to learn. Even in our failures. You are a child of God if you've trusted in Christ and will forever be. So let's work our way through these nine verses, and we're going to see that today. Paul is going to drive home. He's got a lot of things to tell the Corinthians in this letter, and there are some hard things, and Paul is not one to avoid conflict. But before he ever gets there, he has some things to say to those in Corinth. He begins his letter like he does many other letters. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes was um, a Jewish ruler, actually, in the synagogue of Corinth and became a believer, and now is with Paul. So Paul, first of all, says, I am an apostle. That word means sent. I have been sent by God to do his work. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent by God to do the work of God. 
The word, the verb, apostle, is used of Jesus in the Gospels. He was sent by God to do the will of God. Later, it became the name, the title for the 12 disciples. They were the ones, two things they had to have done. If you're an apostle, you had to see the risen Lord and you're personally commissioned by him. And the 12 apostles were that. And the problem with Paul is he wasn't one of the 12, right? And so those in Corinth were saying, Paul, how dare you confront us? How dare you deal with the issues here? You're not an apostle. Paul's going to address that in 2 Corinthians. Very straightforward. But here he has some things to say as well. From the very beginning then, he says, I am apostle of Jesus Christ. And here's why I know I'm an apostle. Because I have been called not on my own, but I've been called by who? The will of God. It is God who called me. That happened, if you want to read about it, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, and Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, stopped him in his tracks and said, Paul, you are mine. You just thought you were on your own. You belong to me. And from that time on, Paul realized the grace that God had given him. Paul realized the mercy that had been shown him. He never got over that. He never got over that. At the end of this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared to me also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But check this out. But... What? Read it with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I know I surprised you, so you didn't read it with me. So let's do it this time, right? <laughs> but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is a statement for every believer. Regardless of your past, regardless of the stuff you've done, it's not about you. It's never been about you. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm a child of the living God. After Paul establishes his authority, he now writes to, explains who he's writing to. And he's writing to the church of God. The church of God. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It simply means called out once. We have been called out. We live in a culture, but we have been called out of that culture to serve and to follow the living God. We are the called out ones. The church exists in two ways. Think of the church like this. We've been called out to be saints together. That's the church little c. That's us, local churches throughout the world, church little c. And then, Paul says, we've been called out together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. That's the church big c. That's the church that we will worship God forever with in heaven. The church universal. You are the church. You are the called out ones. 
And Paul gets specific here, talking about church little c. You are the church that is in Corinth. Now, those first reading this letter, if they weren't from Corinth or even from Corinth, they would have said, man, those two words just don't seem to go together. We are the called out ones. God has called us out. He, 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 he made us his own. But the church in Corinth. Corinth was just flat out known for its immorality. Thousand temple prostitutes always available for anyone who wanted them. Plus, I'm sure there are other prostitutes as well. And the church of Corinth looked more like the culture than they did the called out ones. The south side of the, of the marketplace in Corinth had these taverns. It was just a line with taverns, underground cisterns for cooling drinks. And when a Corinthian was, was depicted in a play, he was depicted as someone who was drunk. The word Corinth became a verb to Corinthianize meant to live in sexual immorality. And right in the, right in the middle of that, Right in the middle of that culture, God places his what? His called out ones. He always does. He places a smack dab in the middle of a mess. And he calls us from that. The world is Satan's system. Satan is the prince of the world, Jesus said. Paul says he's the God of this age. But the church... The called out ones have always been and always will be swimming against the culture. It's not a surprise for us. It's not a surprise when you read your news feed on your phone and it's not at all what you agree with. We are called out of that. What you read on your news feed is what we've been called out of. We're going to have a different perspective. We're going to have different truths. We're going to live by a different set of standards because we are the called out ones. And our job is not only to proclaim the message of Christ, but to demonstrate it so everyone gets to see what it looks like to truly follow hard after Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the church at Corinth looked more like the culture than it did the called out ones. Maybe that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? If we're honest. If we're honest, we look sometimes more like the culture than the called out ones. And the people in Corinth were so concerned about this. A group was so concerned that they left Corinth here and they went to find Paul. He was in Ephesus and they traveled either by sea or maybe they took the land route. We don't know. And they go find Paul in Ephesus. And they say, Paul, I know you founded this church. And I know you taught us the truth. And I know you laid the foundation. But that was seven years ago. And we are in an absolute mess. Paul, you, don't, you can't believe what's happening. People have bought into a celebrity culture. Paul, they are following men rather than following God. Can you imagine? Paul, they're spending more time on Instagram than they are reading the Bible. 
Unbelievable. Many of them, Paul, have fallen into sexual immorality. Some of them so deeply that the pagans are saying, we can't believe you're doing that. And Paul, you're not going to believe this, but, but they're constantly deleting their history from their iPhones, particularly the porn sites. They've got some marriage issues. The husbands and wives staying together, you know what some of them are doing? They're, they're, they are using God's great gift of sex as a weapon against each other, depriving each other. Power plays. Paul, they're dragging each other to court. Believers. And Paul, you were there. You know all those spiritual gifts that God gave them? Some of them, this is unbelievable, I know. Paul, some of them aren't even using their gifts. And some of them thinks, think because they have one gift and someone else has another gift that they're better. And pride is taken over. And look down their nose at other people. Paul, we are in a mess. We've lost our focus. We've lost our way. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be tempted to write a pretty harsh response right from the get-go, right? I would. Thankfully, Paul wasn't. Inspired by God, Paul does something that absolutely amazes me. To this group of believers who are in immorality, who are following celebrities, to this group of believers who are not living like they should, to this group of believers who are using their gifts in a way that does not honor God, to this group of believers, you know what Paul does? He says in verse 4, hey, I want to tell you guys something. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Why? Because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. It's not about you. It's about the grace of God. It's always at work in your life, even in your deepest failure. God's grace is always there. You're still his children even when you don't act like it. And so Paul sets out to establish that before he ever gets into the issues, and he's going to get into the issues. But before he ever does that, he said, I want to remind you who you are. And he gives four truths, four truths of our spiritual standing. Here's the first one. First of all, Paul says, don't forget this. Even those of you involved in sexual immorality, even those of you following celebrities, even those of you who are, who, who are getting drunk at communion, don't forget this. God has called you to himself. That was his work, not yours. God called you to himself. To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ, called to be 
saints. God called you. He is the one who initiated the relationship. By the way, do you know that? If you're a believer, God initiated the relationship. God called you to himself. I want you to think about that. If you're a believer, think about the time in your life when God got your attention, just like Paul on the road to Emmaus. Maybe, maybe it was very subtle. You were in a church service, you heard the gospel, you responded. Maybe your mom and dad shared with you what it meant to be a believer. And you prayed and you trusted in Christ. You knelt by your bed. Maybe it was as dramatic as Paul on the road to Demaeus where God stopped you in your tracks and you realized you, you were sick and tired of your sin and you couldn't, you couldn't keep going. Maybe you know the day and the time and the place. Maybe you just say, I don't know the day and the time and the place. I just know that I know that God called me to himself. Think about that. When did God call you to himself? You know, Paul never got over that. He never got over that. God's calling didn't make him proud. The more mature he got as a believer, the more humble he became. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even, de- I don't even, I'm not even deserving of being called an apostle. But what? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says God called you to two things. One, he called you to be saints together. By the way, if you're a believer, you're a saint. Your wife might not think so. And your husband may not think so. But you are a saint. Saint is not something you get after you die. And then they look at your life and they see some miracle you did. If you're a believer, you are a saint. The word saint means to be set apart. God called you to be set apart. He called you to be counter-cultural. He called you to live a life for him in this world that is completely opposed to Satan's system. You are a saint. And he also called us to something else. This is down in verse 9. He called us to fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse uh, 9. God is faithful by whom he called you into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word fellowship is the word uh, koinonia. It's a beautiful uh, Greek word. It means richness. It means relationship. It means participation in. You are in fellowship with Jesus. Paul says that we have died with him. We've experienced that. He died for us on the cross and we live with him. Every aspect of Christ's life we participate with. We are in, and Jesus is always with us. Just think about that. Because of the fellowship we have, we are never alone. Never alone. Some of you may be going through some stuff, and you feel like you're alone. Not with Jesus. Some of you may be surrounded by people. It looks like you're the life of the party. Be dying inside. But if you're a believer, I want to remind you, you have fellowship with Jesus. Research shows today that there's more loneliness among teenagers than ever before. So the next generation will know a book written by McDowell and Wallace. Let me just tell you what they say. Based on the online presence 
Most teens seem eminently happy, but this happiness is often a veneer hiding deep, what? Loneliness. In fact, according to psychology professor Gene Twenge, the new generation is on the verge of the greatest mental health crisis in decades. That's what loneliness causes. She noticed a significant increase in depression and loneliness around the year 2012, the year Gen Z became high school seniors. And this trend crosses socioeconomic, racial, demographic categories. She attributes the increase of increased loneliness to the ubiquity of smartphones and increased um, and resulting decrease of personal interaction. Think about that. When we are on our phones, we are not having personal interaction. Regardless of the cause, one thing is clear. There is a growing mental health crisis of loneliness and depression among today's students. And so parents, one thing, you've got to get them off their phones, right? Let me say that again. Parents, one thing, you've got to get your kids off your phone because you're the parent, by the way. You can do that. The Bible says so. And secondly, you got to teach your kids that with Jesus, you're never alone. With Jesus, you can always stand strong because you've been called to fellowship with him. Not only are we called, but secondly, we are set apart to the church in Corinth, to those sanctified. That's the word in Christ Jesus. It's much like the word saint. Really, it means the same thing. We have been set apart. We've been set apart to do what God's called us to do. We've been set apart to demonstrate to a world, not just proclaim it, but demonstrate to a world what it looks like to follow hard after Jesus. We've been set apart to be counter-cultural. The church will always be counter-cultural. We shouldn't be surprised when people don't agree with those who have been called out and set apart for God. We shouldn't be surprised that a world system run by Satan himself will say things and do things that are, that are opposed to what we know to be true, what we know we believe. That shouldn't be surprising because we have been set apart. We have been sanctified. Two parts of sanctification theologically. One is there is positional and there is progressive. Positional sanctification is this. The very moment God calls me to himself, from my standpoint, I trust in him. That very nanosecond, I am set apart for God right then and there. That's where my life with Christ starts. That is positional. Nothing will ever change that. Jesus died for me on the cross. When God calls me to himself, he takes the work of Jesus on the cross and he imputes it to me. He accredits it to me. He gives it to me. He declares me righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did for me. Right then and there, I am sanctified. And we won't take time to look at the passages, but there are many of them shown in the past tense. This is what happened to you. This is what happened to you. Check out um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is who you were. That's who you were. That was your identity. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. It's a done deal. Positional. Now it gets practical. Progressive. 
and progressive sanctification, if progressive sanctification means we are set apart, positional means we're set apart, progressive means that we become more and more set apart. This year than last year. This month than last month. We are growing in our walk with Christ, both positionally and progressively. It looks like this. You've seen this chart before. Here's when we come to Christ, right? Right here. When we trust in Christ, we are justified, we are sanctified, we are redeemed. We'll see that in another passage. And then, that's a position. That's never going to change. Then, our journey starts with Christ. And we have that tension of of, of sometimes we sin and we don't want to, but we do. We have some down times. Then we go to heaven. Progressive sanctification is this right here. We should see some progress in our life if we're growing in our walk with Christ. So Paul tells these people in sin, you've been called out by God. He has imputed the righteousness of Christ on you, in you. You are set apart for him, and now you can live your life as one set apart for him. Third truth we see here, God has gifted you, Corinthians. He has given you great gifts. We see that in verses uh, 4 through 7. Paul says, man, you guys are a gifted group of people. You got knowledge, you got wisdom. God's given you all these gifts to do the things that he has called you to do. And now, one thing left. What's that? If you have a gift, what do you have to do with it? You got to use it. So I want to challenge you guys. Are you using your gift? You're a believer. You have at least one. Are you using it? Where are you using it? Gallup says 70%, 70% of the American workforce is dissatisfied with their job. Do you know that? I don't know if you're in the 30 or the 70. 70%. And when we challenge you to use your gift, we're not saying, hey, you know, we need, we got some needs here and we want the church to run and we want to be effective as a church, so we need you to jump in here and do that. And not why we challenge you to use your gift. This is, a, this is a biblical challenge. Here's the deal. God has gifted you. And when you, you, when you as a believer use your spiritual gift, there is absolutely nothing more satisfying in all the world. Nothing. To grow as a believer, to experience the satisfaction, the significance of who you are in Jesus, you have to be using your gift. That's why God gave it to you. Not so you could hoard it or ignore it or let it set. He gave it to you to use. And when you use it, there's nothing like it. And I promise you, if you're in the 70% who you don't enjoy your job, if you learn your spiritual gift and why God put you on this earth, and how he gifted you and put you on this earth, I promise you that you will be more satisfied at work because that gift will come about, not in an inappropriate way, 
but your gift will be seen by others. You'll be able to experience, you'll be able to use it. God doesn't say, I'm giving you a gift and you can only use it on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or here at the church. I gave you this gift to use all the time. You're special to me. I want you to be happy in your work. I've called you to that. No one else can proclaim and demonstrate Jesus in your work area like you can. Think about that. If every one of us went from here and, and this day forward, we represented Christ in a dynamic way in the workplace, man, think about the revival that would happen in Pittsburgh. If we divided and conquered by God's grace, because we realize we are set apart. God put us on this earth to do something special. He gave us everything we need to do something special. And when you use that gift, nothing like it. Nothing like it. If you say, well, I'm a believer, but I don't know what my gift is, then all you have to do is email us or they have this thing called a phone. You can even talk to people on the phone these days. Kind of outdated, I know. But you could call us. You can text us. And we will get you with some people who will help you learn how you're wired, what your gift is. And then we'll even say, here's some opportunities to, to grow it and, and mature it if you want to. But you know what? I got to tell you, the ball's in your court. We can invite you but you've got to do it. Ball's in your court. If you know your gift and you're not using it, come and say, here's my gift, and I need some help using it. And we'll do that as well. God called you. God set you apart for himself. God gifted you. One more thing. Again, he's writing to the Corinthians, living in immorality, getting drunk at communion, and he said, you know what, guys? God will keep you and he'll protect you to the very end. This God I serve, Paul says, will sustain you. Again, he's writing to Corinthians. Going to sustain you to the end. And he's going to present you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for you, those of you steep in sexual immorality. Those of you distant from God. Because of Jesus, because of his grace, when you die, even if you die in the darkness of sexual immorality, Jesus will present you before the Heavenly Father and say, I died for this person. They are here because of me. We called them, him, her, to ourselves. We will sustain them to the very end. Now Paul says, you don't live in sin, but even in, even in your sin, God's work is real in your life. I just want you to go home with those two things. If you didn't hear anything else, just hear this. God's work is real in your life, believers, even in your deepest failure. 
your spiritual standing is initiated and sustained by God even in your deepest what? Failure. Even in your distance. God's still with you and he will never leave you and he'll never forsake you and he'll sustain you to the end. If he wrote that to the church in Corinth, man, he was drilling it down. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. By God's grace, only by God's grace, I am what I am. When we know that, when we get it, then we live life differently. We're not surprised by what the culture does or says or teaches or begins to believe. We, we just deal with that in truth. We don't only proclaim, but we demonstrate to a watching world what it looks like to be forgiven, what it looks like to be significant in Christ and accepted in Christ and forgiven in Christ and empowered in Christ. And that changes everything because people sit up and take notice that there's something different in your life. On September the 6th, 2018, an off-duty Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger just ended a 12-hour shift and she went to her apartments in the south side flats of Dallas, downtown Dallas, not too far from the police headquarters. And she entered the apartment building and she went up to her apartment and she found a man sitting on her couch. She pulled her gun and she shot him. She called 911. They came to get him. His name was Bosham Jean. 26-year-old worker for Price Waterhouse Coopers. She shot him, called 911, took him to the hospital. He died. And all the confusion, as crazy as this sounds, Amber Geiger, when she went into apartment building, had gone to the wrong floor. And she thought she was walking into her apartment but she was walking into Boshan Jean's apartment. It was his apartment. And he was just sitting there on the couch eating ice cream when she shot and killed him. This last week, the trial ended. In October the 1st, just a few days ago, Amber Geiger was found guilty of murder and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. At the sentencing, the murdered man's brother, Brant Jean, had this to say to Amber, the person who killed his brother. Check this out. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. 
but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.